This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. More than ever, I am super selective on how I spend my time, whether it's choosing which emails to read or how I get my continuing ed units. I want value for my time and efforts. I'm Shar Beauchart, and I bet you can relate. So when I say I get my CEUs from SpeechTherapyPD.com, just know their speech-language videos and pod courses are practical and totally worth it. And right now, you have the exclusive opportunity to pay less for the subscription than I I did. <laughs> okay? Memorize this discount code. It's SHAR, C-H-A-R. Just go to SpeechTherapyPD.com, subscribe, and at checkout, type in what? SHAR, C-H-A-R. You get a $10 discount for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Do it now. It doesn't take long. SpeechTherapyPD.com. You and your speech kids will be glad you did. It's time well spent. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Shar Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Today, I'm talking with you about something that I've done in my language therapy that was really beneficial. So I have a question for you. Do you sump creak? Maybe you don't now, but maybe you'll want to incorporate this into your language therapy. Sump Creek is an acronym. It refers to nine evidence-based keys that I'm going to share with you. I'll spell the word Sump Creek just in case you're taking notes. It's S as in Sam, E-M, P as in Paul, C-R-E-E-Q, Sump Creek. I bet most of us when we do therapy write goals or objectives or both. Sometimes we do benchmarks. And those objectives drive what we do with our kids. I'd like to give you something to think about. And I'd like to ask you to widen or broaden your view to include something else that I think is even more important that we need to keep in the back of our mind as we're doing therapy with our kids. And that is the word and the concept of transfer. That what we do with our kids impacts them so deeply that they not only remember, but they apply what they have learned and hopefully what they have retained. I want them to transfer the information, the abilities into the classroom, into home, into life. We all know that what we do or what we're trying to do with our kids goes way beyond playing a game having them say sounds or having them look at pictures and talk about pictures or even just listening to stories. It goes way beyond that. We are trying to impact them and their capabilities to say the speech sounds and to incorporate the language abilities into their communication wherever they're at. That's transfer. Transfer is really our ultimate goal. Now, in regards to Semp Creek, you can choose any or all of the following nine keys to incorporate into your therapy. Now, many of the keys can be applied when working with kids with their speech sounds, but today I'm specifically suggesting that you incorporate them into your language therapy to help the child retain and successfully transfer their language skills. The first key, the S, stands for storage. And here's the concept, and I'm hoping that you commit this to memory. You cannot recall what you have not stored. I got this information out of a book called How the Brain Learns by David Sousa, 2016. This may be important to you because I bet you've had kids, if you see kids on Monday, Wednesday, and you have done an activity on Monday, and maybe you've done it for the past couple of weeks and you've really emphasized a particular concept and whoop, there they go on Wednesday. They don't have it. They didn't retain it. 
So storage, especially for our kids, can be a real factor. So I'm always thinking in the back of my mind as I'm doing language therapy, what can I do to help kids store information? Two things. Number one, does the information make sense to the child? Most kids are so eager to please and they want to be compliant. And we say, honey, does that make sense? Do you understand that? And of course they nod yes or they go, oh yeah, yeah, I got it. (laughs) When I'm just not sure that they do. So we can't assume that they always understand the information. And it's vitally important as to how we impart the information and the level of complexity of the content that we use. We have to make sure that they are understanding so that they can store it, so that they can recall it. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about how to do that right now, but as we move through our other Semp Creek keys, they will tell us how to help kids understand, to engage them, and move into storage and recall information. So just know that that information is coming. Now, the second thing that Sousa talks about in regards to storage is relevancy. Is the information relevant to the child? We know that kids a lot of times will say, why do I have to do this? I don't get it. Why do I need to know it? They're looking for relevancy. So if we're doing a list of synonyms, the kids need to know why synonyms are important. Where does that fit in in their academic scope or in their life? Why are, why are synonyms important? We know why they're important, but the child probably doesn't. So relevance. When I'm doing therapy, I try to choose topics and themes and subjects that the children like and is relevant to them. We as speech-language pathologists are fortunate that we are not, quotes, married to, for example, a second-grade curriculum where you have to do certain stories and so on. We have the benefit of pulling in any topic that we want. Now, you can't really miss with animals. Most kids have pets at home. You can use stories and poems and articles and so on that address themes that they like. A lot of times, articles about kids are really interesting to the kids, and that will capture their attention, maintain their focus. In other words, do they have firsthand interest in the topic? You know, it maybe it's something that they have experienced or something similar to something that they have experienced, or maybe they have read something like it. Uh, Maybe they can relate to a particular topic. They just went to grandma's house over the weekend and you're reading a story about going to grandma's house. Topic relevancy can help you help the child to attend, focus, remember, and recall much better. The second key is the E, and it stands for emotions. I'm going to start off with one of my favorite phrases, and it is, Emotions interact with reason to either support or inhibit learning. This also came from Sousa, Sousa's book, How the Brain Learns. Emotions in therapy can be our best friend or our worst enemy. For example, if a child has a meltdown before they come to your therapy session, chances are good that that therapy session is not going to go terribly well. The child's going to be upset, he's not going to be able to focus, and he's probably going to make it generally difficult for everyone there to think and focus and respond. Contrast that with positive emotions. Positive emotions open the blinds, open the door to learning. Emotions interact with reason to either support or inhibit learning. Why? Because learning is primarily an emotional process. The brain prefers active, not passive learning. The brain is always trying to create a reason to learn. We remember things that make an emotional imprint, right? And usually emotions is is involved. We remember our wedding day, our graduation. Um, Remember the day that the World Trade Center attacks happened? September 10, 2001, I bet you know exactly where you were when that emotional time happened. 
so many of my therapy kids in the past have felt and also thought, so you have the emotion and the reason, that they couldn't learn. They had difficulty with reading, with math, with just overall academics. And then they come into therapy, and I'm going to say that very few of them actually enjoyed working with words, (laughs) and language is all about words. And there we were, learning about words. And I saw that language therapy time as my responsibility to help them to turn that around so that they emotionally and cognitively had a sense that they could learn. And I determined that my goal was to help them to establish the love of words. So I wanted to make it enjoyable for them. But the tasks that I had for them were at their capability level. And we know if the tasks are not at their capability level, they're not going to understand it, so it's not going to be stored and recalled. And then also, I wanted to add what I call emotional hooks to my therapy. Yes, I wanted them to get a sense that they could learn and that they enjoyed the tasks, but I added the emotional hooks to enhance their understanding and their recall. So here are some of the emotional hooks. In your therapy, try doing something that is unexpected. Bring in music, apps, or maybe some online activities, or some audios, or some videos. Maybe videotape them and look at it and talk about it. Maybe go around the school and do some videotaping, bring it back. I'm certainly not going to do this every time, but every once in a while, slip in something that is unexpected. For example, I put a child's piano app on my iPad and just go to the app store and just, you know, search out. There's bunches of them. Um, Piano for children would be a, a good search. And every once in a while, we would create like just a little phrase, just a little quotes, not even a song just a musical phrase to help the kids remember. I remember the first time that I did this, I was using that EET, Expanding Expressive Language, and the green group, blue, do, what does it look like? What is it made of? (laughs) That doesn't sound very good, but the kids liked it. And we created this little song. You know, even, you know, I'm walking around school and one of the kids comes up and they start singing the song and it stayed in their mind. And I bet even now, it's been a couple of years, I bet they still remember that song. So do something unexpected, something fun that they can use to help them to remember. Continuing on with the emotional hooks, I'd like to try this with you. If I say this next sentence, how do you feel? Here's the sentence. I'd like to challenge you with something I think you're going to like. (laughs) How did you feel? Did you think, oh, yeah, yeah, what, what's the question? What's the challenge? And you probably felt a pretty positive emotion. Sometimes we think of the words challenge and competition as being synonymous, and perhaps they are, but I think of the word challenge as being something that's personal. I want to challenge myself to see if I can come up with the answer, and that's kind of a fun thing to do. The other word, competition, pretty much implies that there's a person or other persons that are involved. Another emotional hook can be using physical expressions or sound effects or movement and gestures, which we're going to be talking about right now. That moves us into number three, the third key, the M, and M stands for movement. And if I had to pick a favorite key, it would probably be this one. Keep in mind that movement is a learning link. Say it out loud with me. Movement is a learning link. The brain and the body make connections when you move. In fact, movement builds nerve networks. It builds connections. And also, it helps us to perceive concepts in a broader way. I have a wonderful book in my hand right here. You can maybe hear it. (laughs) It's called Smart Moves. 
Why Learning is Not All in Your Head. And it's by Carla Hannaford. She talks about movement and learning and what we can do. And here's something that she tells us in the book. She says that movement activates the neural wiring throughout the body, making the whole body the instrument of learning. Movement anchors thought and is essential to learning. Also, I'd like to quote Jim Stone. Now, I saw Jim Stone in a seminar, and I'm very familiar with his program, Animated Literacy. And I remember something that he said. And he he was a kindergarten teacher in first grade, and I think third grade as well, for years and years. So he's very experienced. And he said that kids aren't learning if they aren't moving. Now, that's a pretty sweeping statement. And uh, it's probably a little bit of a generalization, but I get his meaning. Movement generates new levels of self-discovery and self-expression. And it helps our kids, too, just to fit this in, that have low affect. You know, that emotional piece and the facial features piece, and kids say something, but they don't have the corresponding look on their face, get them moving. Get their whole body moving so that their face as well as their body becomes a whole means of expression. And from doing therapy for several decades, (laughs) I can tell you that movement engages kids. It captures their attention and helps them focus. Now, you may be thinking, oh, you know, no, that movement piece, they're going to get out of hand. But you know what? There are ways to control that and to specify the movement that you want them to do. So it's more of a supplement to your therapy than movement being the entire piece. We're not doing physical education here. We're supplementing the oral language that we're working on. So let me get specific here and give you some ideas and some thoughts about what are things that you can do. Movement that you can add to your therapy can be as large as standing up and moving around the room or as small as drawing a picture. It can, and it can be in between where the child stands up, goes over, and moves the picture from one pocket chart to another. So there are various types of movement. The handout includes multi-purpose materials a listing of several things that I've used in therapy that I call either multi-purpose materials or universal materials. And you can use each one of these games, so to speak, with pretty much any language target for a discrete language activity. So, for example, you have sight word steps. And the sight word steps are circles, maybe 10 inches in diameter, They're plastic and have a picture pocket so that you can put pictures or words in there so that you can add movement to the activity. Put them on the floor and the child can step from one circle to the next so that you can do a task such as synonyms so that the child has to find the correct synonym and step on it, (laughs) okay? Maybe put it into a sentence. Or I've used it quite a bit for syntax, where the child steps on the word and making sure that he or she includes that is or the a or puts on the plural, and you've got movement going there. Um, Other things, you've got Pocket charts, a variety of different types of pocket charts. You've got something called the cling thing. And just as you have picture cards or word cards on the table, you can put them up on the wall so that the child has to stand up and either go get it or stick it up there as they talk about it and match or do associations or create sentences or whatever you want. So these items have a movement piece to them so that they have to literally get up and go do something to the materials. Another one that kids really like is the magnetic whiteboard spinner. And you stick your pictures around in a circle, put the spinner in the center, and they spin. And whatever it lands on, they talk about, etc. And it comes with three different spinners. So that usually I put up two and kind of treat it like the cling thing, you know, where you have 
uh, high frequency words on one side and content words on the other, and they have to generate a sentence. So it involves movement. Um, last but not least, I would like to talk a little bit about movement during stories or during poems that supplement and bring the stories to life. One of my favorite stories is called The Kiss That Missed. And the king walks by the prince's room, and the king is headed to his bath, and he's quickly walking by and throws his son a kiss. Well, it misses, and it bounces around the room, and it goes out the window, and the story begins, and it has a big dragon in it, and, you know, and of course, everything ends well. But throughout the story, the kiss is bouncing around and spreading its happiness, and the kids love it. So, you know, you can create a gesture every time the kiss comes through where their arms wave and their arms are circling and going around the room, just as a supplement to the story. There are so many ways to include movement in your therapy. Just let your creativity run wild. Ooh, let's move into number four, the P in Semp Creek. And the P stands for pronunciation. If. They cannot pronounce a word. Our kids will skip over the word in their reading. They won't use the word in their writing. And most certainly, they won't use the word in their verbal communications. And, you know, I've been a therapist in the schools. And many times as I'm observing or just sneaking in to get my kids to take them to therapy, I've looked in the classrooms and teachers don't typically ask the kids to say or repeat words out loud. Instead, they have them write it. Wouldn't it be helpful if both occurred? Well, that's just me. Bottom line, our kids especially, but you know what, you and me as well, have to be able to pronounce the words that we're reading or that we're trying to learn. Otherwise, we won't use that word in our oral vocabulary. Here's an example, okay? If you have the handout, and if you don't have it, that's okay. I'll read it to you here. Take a look at that wonderfully compelling couple of paragraphs, okay? I'm going to read it just a little bit. I don't think I'm going to read the whole thing, but here's what it is. And it's a series of words that maybe you wouldn't know what they mean. So here's a paragraph. Colloidal gold, immunocytochemical preparations, illustrating the expression of amylogenin by differentiating ameloblasts. Amylogenin molecules are immune-detected extracellularly early during the pre-secretory stage before the removal of the basement membrane separating ameloblasts from the developing predentin matrix. Thereafter, enamel proteins accumulate as patches at the interface with dentin and then as a uniform layer of initial enamel. <laughs> what the heck does that mean? When I have SLPs read this at seminars and, you know, I say, what's the paragraph about? Usually they say it has something to do with teeth. And I say, how do you know? What was your clue? And they usually respond with, well, I recognize the word dentin. And that has something to do with teeth. So I'm going, yeah, that's correct. So they use their prior knowledge about a word in that paragraph. But here's the idea. Here's the reason I read that. It's rather like children that are reading when they have no clue how to decode or what words mean. In the paragraph that I just read, immunocytochemical, for heaven's sakes, has 18 letters, okay? And the first time that I tried to read that, I had to just sit and parse it out. I had to figure it out. And then I said it over and over and over. And when I first started saying amylogenin, I pronounced it amylogenin. Hear the difference? Amylogenin, amylogenin. I probably said it the wrong way for, oh, I don't know, months. And then I thought, you know, I better look it up. I better Google it to really see how it's pronounced. And I did. And I was pronouncing it wrong. So now I pronounce it correctly, amylogenin. But sometimes I find myself wanting to pronounce it the old way. So I have to really think about saying it the new correct way. So it's almost like when you first hear a word and you need to learn it, learn it correctly. Otherwise, the old wrong way sticks with you. So they need to know how to say it, but also say it correctly from the very beginning. 
So as you are instructing the meaning of words and you're using child-friendly word meanings, don't forget to have them say the word and pronounce the word and repeat it several times as a group and individually. In fact, pronunciation, I think, is a cousin of articulation. To be able to pronounce the word and repeat it several times is a form of phonological rehearsal as well as proprioceptive movement memory. Moving right along, here's number five. Context. Contextual instruction. That's the C in Sump Creek. Context is king. <laughs> okay. Contextual instruction is critical. No matter if you're doing discrete type activities or narrative type instruction, word meanings are not just unrelated bits of information, but they're a larger part of meaning a larger knowledge structure. So in working on the meaning of words, the child first must understand, learn, file it away, and then pull it up and recall it and use it correctly when he or she needs it. And context provides that, that glue. Context is essential. Otherwise, the child is just recalling via memory. Char Beauchard here. True story. I just hung up the phone with an SLP that had attended an on-site seminar. She said she loved the seminar, but she forgot to fill out her ASHA participant form. Sounds easy enough, huh? Uh-uh. The seminar was three months ago, and all the paperwork had been submitted, and ASHA doesn't take late forms. So I said, Linda, you have to file an appeal with ASHA. Then she said, this is a nightmare. I drove two hours to get there, two hours to get home, and now I have to file an appeal? I felt for her. And then I said, Linda, have you ever heard of SpeechTherapyPD.com? She said, no. I said, just get your CEUs online, girl. That's what I do. You don't have to leave home. They have over 500 hours of video, a huge variety of topics for SLPs that work with children and adults. And if you don't want to watch a video, then listen to the pod courses and get your CEUs that way. Then she said, they're pretty expensive, right? I said, uh, no. Their plans start at $89 a year, for heaven's sake. And then I said, do you want the icing on the cake? SpeechTherapyPD.com has scheduled a CEU cruise next summer to Italy and Greece. Woohoo! She said, okay, I'm looking them up right now. And so should you. SpeechTherapyPD.com. Check them out. Tell your friends. You'll be glad you did. <laughs> Have you ever tried to learn Chinese characters? You know, you try to find some associated meaning in the character, right? Let's say that you're trying to decipher and read the character that means love. And maybe you search for something like two lines that are close together and you think, ah, there's an association. I'll remember those two lines because they're loving one another. <laughs> okay. Association and relevancy are not quite the same, but wow, they are sure related. Context provides a framework for understanding, associations for learning and retention, connections and continuity of our thoughts so we can connect them. That leads to retention. We know that word knowledge is strongly linked to success. Children who have larger vocabularies can understand new ideas and concepts more quickly than children who don't, who have limited vocabularies. So vocabulary is knowledge, and the child not only needs to learn the quotes definition of the word, which I kind of like the child-friendly word meaning, okay, rather than using the word definition, but the child not only needs to know what the word means, but how it fits into his or her world. That's context. Now, regarding using narratives as context, there, I mean, it's a natural Stories have continuity and context, and I'd like to slip this in too. By the way, if you are using stories in your therapy, don't tell them that this is an easy book or a challenging book because that emphasizes the mechanics of reading. 
Just tell them that it's a really good book that they're going to enjoy. Okay, so you have stories, obviously. Poems are excellent. I'll be talking more about poems a little bit later on. Articles. I love using articles. Kids like articles, especially when you find articles of things that they really like, like maybe maybe the child rides bikes, or maybe the family went to a certain place for a vacation, or maybe it has to do with a certain computer game, or Nintendo or something, something the child can relate to. There's all kinds of articles about kids out there. Also, there are reader's theater scripts that can be really good narratives, and even songs. Regarding the use of discrete therapy activities, well, we slice the context a little differently. We do mass practice of selected words. First, introduce the context. A fun way to introduce language targets is by reading a book. I've got two authors to share with you, and, you know, if I were you, I'd just go to Amazon and look them up and check them out. And the first one is Ruth Heller. Her series is called World of Language Books, and she writes books on verbs and adjectives and pronouns, etc. And the second author is Brian Cleary. (laughs) He's amazing. He's got books on prepositions and one on alliteration that is absolutely cute. It's called Chips and Cheese and Nana's Knees. He writes books on adjectives and that kind of thing. But that's a wonderful way to introduce the discrete language activity that you're going to do. Read the book. Then say, these are all synonyms, and here's why you need to know synonyms, or these are antonyms, or these are word associations, or perhaps you're working on test-taking words, or theme words, maybe food or household items or transportation, or maybe you're working on adjectives or action words. And you're going to do that by grouping them together, but tell them what the group is, and why they need to know those particular words. And then, of course, put them in sentences and bring out their prior knowledge about the words so that they have something to connect it to. We're just rolling right along here. Key number six. Repetition is the R in Semp Creek. Repeated readings of narratives, of course, or repeating of words and sentences within your discrete tasks. That's what I'm talking about. The bottom line is that repetition cultivates conceptual understanding, whether it's narrative or discrete activities. Technically, repetition means that you instruct the same narrative or passage or language targets several times, typically two or more times. Now I'm going to say mm, a lot more times, okay? There is research, but it's mostly about reading, and so I'll share that with you. According to research, it takes 17 exposures to a word, a vocabulary word, if you will, for that word to embed and for the child to fully understand it and use it. That is for the average, regular, normal learning child. Okay. Another article discusses the needs of a mildly learning impaired student. And that one says that the child needs 46 repetitions in context for a word to be recognizable on a word recognition test. So that's word recognition, that's visual, that's reading. Also, according to By Miller and Boot in 2006, and this is more narrative, they found that students made an average gain of 12% improvement in word knowledge when they heard the story two times, when compared to students who only heard the story one time. This was measured by a vocabulary test that measured knowledge of word meanings in context. The students made an additional gain when the word explanations, child-friendly word meanings, in other words, were included in the read-alouds. So there you go. That makes total sense. (laughs) Let's tell the kid what the word means. In regards to what we do in therapy, and we are focused on oral language, but we can use print language. I love using print language because it's kind of like having oral language frozen in time. You know, you can look at it and manipulate it and discuss it and review it. Unlike oral language where you say it and poof, it's gone. I think I mentioned earlier that I really like doing therapy with narratives. 
And you can take a story and you can milk that story for several weeks, okay? Doing oh so many things with a story. And we're going to be talking uh, here in a few minutes about echo rating. And that's especially useful when you're working with stories. But using narratives gives you the opportunity to select a sentence out of a story or a line out of a poem and talk about it and have them say it and talk about the vocabulary and discuss another word that might work even better than a word that the author used. You can talk about synonyms and antonyms, talk about multiple meaning words. And when you come across a saying or an idiom that is just especially rich, you can discuss it and it's all within context. So yes, you can read the story multiple times, but you can also take that story and extract the important language targets that you want to work on. So in effect, you are using that story as a resource, as a framework for the specific targets that you want to work on. As far as discrete activities, that's a natural for repetition. If you have a certain group on Monday and Wednesday, you use a selected word list on Monday and you do the same words on Wednesday, but you do a different activity, a different game, a different technique. Key number seven is echo reading. It's the E in Semp Creek. <laughs> okay, we have two E's there toward the end. Echo reading. The meaning or the implementation of echo reading was originally coined by and used by classroom teachers. So I'm just borrowing it here. They do echo reading when working on a story. The teacher reads a phrase or a paragraph. Then the teacher asks the student or students to repeat it or part of it back. Uh, so it could also be choral echoing, okay? And you can easily slide into choral reading with this technique as well. Basically, however, it's imitation. It's what we do. But you're using a narrative, okay? You're using a story, a poem, an article, a reader's theater, or a song. And you say a word, phrase, or sentence, and the child repeats it back. Now, there's quite a bit out there on echo reading, and I think it's a good thing. And from a classroom teacher's point of view, there are several benefits. And we can borrow this technique and reap the benefits with what we do from an oral perspective utilizing print language. So from a classroom teacher's point of view, I'm going to list and talk about seven of them for you. Number one, echo reading improves listening skills. Oh, yes, I totally agree, because echo reading or imitation has an expectation that the child has to do something. He has to participate. And in order to participate, the child has to listen and focus and be ready to respond and do the echoing or do the imitation. So I totally get it. It totally makes sense. The second thing is that echo reading enables struggling students to participate. Yes, they are participating, but they are in effect, and especially for our little low readers or non-readers, and they know when they're not reading, okay? And they, you know, have a sense of low self-esteem because of that, or at least many of them do. So in this way, they can participate in a reading task. And it's great because they don't have to decode the words. They don't have to create the words. They can just concentrate on the meaning and verbalize it more easily. And also they get a sense of fluency. They get a sense of what fluent reading or fluent speaking is all about. And that's a good thing. The third thing is that it helps to build vocabulary, which makes all kinds of sense to me. Um, when I do echo reading, yes, we read a phrase or we, you know, imitate that phrase or sentence. But also, I like to stop and talk about that vocabulary word and do a synonym or maybe do a child-friendly word meaning about that vocabulary word or discuss the broader meaning of that phrase or sentence. The fourth item is that it improves comprehension. Okay, 
especially if you are talking about the child-friendly word meaning, or if you have extracted that sentence and you're talking about that sentence in relationship to the rest of the paragraph and to the rest of the story, that makes sense. It's a great way to talk about the story and what's going on. It's also a really good way to bring in inferences. The fifth item is that it builds confidence in the child. (laughs) And, you know, I really like that. It just, it's a wonderful thing to watch kids read quotes, read the story that can't really read it. And some kids, we've done the the story so many times, they actually start picking out some of the words and that builds their confidence. The sixth item is that it helps to identify unknown words. So yes, that helps with the decoding, but also from my perspective, an unknown word would be a new vocabulary word. Number seven, helps with proper phrasing, which is kind of an interesting thing, bringing in the prosody. So as you say the sentence or the phrase, say it with expression, and the child will also say it with expression. If you just say it deadpan, the child will not offer the expression. You have to say it expressively, and the child will be more apt to say it expressively as well. Now, when doing echo reading or imitation in therapy, in language therapy, give the child a heads up that the two of you are going to be reading it together, and you're going to read most of it, but you'd like to have his help. So basically, when you're doing a narrative, say to the child, I'd like you to help me read this say, and then say the phrase or sentence, or say, repeat after me, or say, copy me, or say the phrase, okay, now it's your turn to read, say, and then you say the phrase. In therapy, echo words that are interesting. And when I say interesting, I mean a word that has an interesting meaning, but also a fun pronunciation. So if you come across a word, and it's kind of a fun word to say, like maybe squiggle. (laughs) Okay, squiggle. That is kind of a fun word to say. Just say it out loud, repeat it, have a good time, you know, go around your group and say it and squiggle. And say, maybe here's a pen, show me squiggle. And say it out loud and squiggle. And look up on the screen and do you see the word squiggle up there? So interesting words, not only just the meaning, but how they're said. Also, you cannot beat echo reading for syntax, okay? Syntax and for grammar. You say a word, you know that the child is having difficulty with plurals, either regular or irregular plurals, or maybe verbs. And you say the sentence and the child says the sentence. And, you know, I have done where you say the sentence You point to a child, you say, now it's your turn. And then you say, point to somebody else in the group and you say it and then have them say it after you. So, you know, in that case, they're not only just echoing you, other children are echoing other children. And that's kind of fun so that they feel like they kind of have the lead in some of it. It's great for memory as well. So if you know that a child is only able to remember maybe two or three words, Give them four words or maybe five short ones and see how they do. Also, if a child has difficulty saying it, feel free to repeat it. If you say a sentence and the child got just a couple of words, repeat it, you know, what the child said after that, and then say it again. Or maybe have the entire group say it. The bottom line to echo reading is this. Three things. Say it. Hear it use it. (laughs) Love it. Hang in there. You're doing great. We're on number eight. It's an E in Semp Creek. Exposures within a variety of activities. I'm going to start off here with a sentence that I really like, and I I wrote it down (laughs) from some journal article or book that I read, but I'm just going to share it with you. I can't give credit to who wrote it, but I give them credit, whoever it is. It says, the growth of word knowledge is slow and incremental and requires multiple exposures in a variety of contexts. 
That makes sense. The exposure within a variety of contexts and activities increases word understanding and use. Bottom line. Exposing a word or several words in a variety of contexts or activities can mean just about anything. It can mean utilizing several different games over a matter of days or weeks, but having the same words. In fact, we referenced earlier the sheet in your handout that lists the multi-purpose materials. In fact, exposures within a variety of contexts dovetails with the contextual instruction that we talked about in key number five, as well as the repetition that we talked about in key number six. They're all cousins, okay? But I also have some additional information and ideas for therapy that I'd like to share with you. There's six of them, and I'll present them pretty quickly. Here we go. Number one, include a conversation about prior knowledge. That can be another context. Love talking about prior knowledge. It's when the child relates back to something that he or she has done or knows about, has experienced, someone's told him about, that is personal to him. And he relates that personal experience to whatever it is that you're talking about. And that's what makes the connection. That's talking about prior knowledge. And that can be another context. In other words, help the child to make personal connections with the text, not just recall, you know, facts and summarize. Help the child to make personal connections. Number two, play with the words, manipulate the words, categorize them, discuss multiple meanings and all the different uh, child-friendly meanings of a particular word. Put the word in sentences, put them on sentence strips and combine them into a, a short story. Make them into, make the particular sentence into a statement and then change it and make it into a question. Add a variety of adjectives and repeat the sentences, etc., etc. Number three, emphasize connections between what you've already worked on with the new information. Four, have a discussion about pros and cons of something relating to the topic and make sure that they utilize those particular vocabulary words. Number five, do what I call a meaningful minute. And this can be something that perhaps you've already done that you'd like to repeat. It could be something that perhaps the teacher wants you to do and to support. It, the meaningful minute is sandwiched in between episodes. Like if you're doing a half hour therapy, it would be at, you know, minute number 15, so to speak. It doesn't have to be exact, but you get what I'm talking about. Type on a piece of paper or write on a whiteboard the words that you want the kids to practice. Maybe they're having difficulty with the irregular plurals, which is always a bugaboo. And you want to just practice them and drill and instill them. Or maybe you're going to identify and read some high-frequency words that the teacher would like you to reinforce. Put them on a piece of paper, stick them up on the wall, and at that 15-minute mark, quotes, have the children stand up. One child has a pointer, usually the child that has had the best behavior for the first 15 minutes, and do choral reading and choral practicing. Now, if the kids can't read, then maybe you, do, you use pictures or perhaps you do echo reading. But it's another way, it's another context, and it's, it's something that you do basically for a minute. The kids stand up, get the blood flowing, practice, drill and instill, sit down, and then get back to what you were doing or start a new activity. Number six, do a word book. There's several different ways. There's many ways to do a word book, but let me share with you how I like to do my word book. And I like to do a word book with children that usually do not have the capability to sit and write words in a book. And they are so proud of their words. They have their own book as well, even though they're not excellent readers or excellent writers. Honestly, part of my reasoning in doing this is that I want to instill the love of words. And I want my kids, my younger kids that are not necessarily language capable, 
to begin to enjoy and become word watchers and really focus on words and start to like words. The word book itself could be fancy or not. You could go to sparklebox.co.uk and they have several different things that you can use to to generate uh, cute pictures and so on and and pages with lines and so that the kids could write on the lines or you could just have a blank piece of paper and when you come across an interesting word or a word that the child likes maybe he likes to say it maybe he likes the meaning then the child chooses to put that word into his or her book the word book to me is personal. I want that child to select and write the word into that book and so that it's his. It's his property. He made the decision. He wrote it. If he wants to draw a picture, that would be wonderful, but he doesn't have to. Now, most of the time they do. Also, most of the time, if you have a group, you know, you have one kid that says, oh, I like that word. I'm going to put it in my book. Then everybody else in the group does too. But that's okay. That's optional. My word books are not graded. You know, they can take them home, obviously. We can share them with the teacher and so on. But it's more of just a personal connection with the child and the words that he or she chooses to put into their very own word book. And the last one, key number nine, Q for questions. Semp Creek. Personally, I just don't think that we talk enough about questions. I sometimes wonder why we actually ask questions. We ask questions to find out if the kids know the answer. But I also think sometimes we use questions as a teaching strategy. I'm just not so sure that all the kids see it that way. I had a kid one time say to me, Why are you asking me that? You know the answer to it. (laughs) And I thought, Oh boy, that kid thinks that I'm quizzing him. I'm not asking him to really find out an answer from him as to what he thinks. I'm quizzing him as to what he knows. So a lot of times to a language disorder child, or to a child, I guess, but especially a language disorder child, typical content questions may feel like interrogation. And the either, either the child shuts down or ramps up his behavior and his little learning pedals become crushed. So why do we ask questions? And a lot of times we just want to know if the child retained the information. And you know what? When we ask that question, clarify it. Say, I just want to know if you remember. Just be upfront. Questions are not always just about questions and answers. I have three things that I'd like to share with you. Here's the first one. Questions are not just about questions and answers. They're about how the material was given and did the child actually receive the information and comprehend the information. So let's say, let's go to a classroom, for example, and the teacher presented material. Maybe everybody read the book. Maybe they did round-robin reading. Then the teacher goes around the room and asks questions. Well, my language child maybe was tuned out. Why would my kid be tuned out? Maybe he does have attention issues, or he probably knows that the teacher is not going to call on him. Also, he knows that if the teacher does call on him, that it's not unusual that he doesn't know the answer and he can get out of it. Okay? So asking my language kids in the standard way of asking questions may or may not be beneficial for him. We need to focus on making sure that the child actually received the information and that he comprehended it. This brings us back to number one, to key number one, to storage. And what were the two elements of storage? That the material had to be understood by the child and that there had to be a level of relevancy. Number two, how did we, the individuals, you know, asking the question, formulate the question? Because there are many different ways to formulate a question. In fact, I'd like to share some of them with you. And they're some of my favorite ways of formulating a question. And you may want to consider using some of these during your therapy or sharing them with your classroom teachers if you're in the schools. With some kids, some groups, 
low-capable kids, start with yes and no questions and answers. Begin with questions that you know that they can answer, that can build their confidence. Supply choices of two or three answers for them to choose from. If it looks like they're stumped, give them a physical prompt. If you offered three answers, put up three fingers and then gesture toward the finger that has the answer. Another one, do fill-in-the-blank or close techniques. For example, we live in the state of, and then leave it blank, and they fill in the blank. And I love this next one. Ask the question, then ask how many children think they know the answer. And you say, don't tell me the answer, just Who thinks that they know the answer? Raise your hand for me. Well, here's the answer. And you give the answer. Who was thinking that in their mind? Or how many people were going to say that? Everybody raises their hand. (laughs) Okay? Everybody participated. Low stress questions. And then go around the room and ask, you know, individuals, you know, or maybe you have a small group, ask them to say the answer to the question. Maybe even ask them to formulate the question and then say the answer. You're using this as a teaching technique. So many times I see people, and I do it all the time myself, use questions as a teaching technique when really it can be stressful to the child and they shut down. Here's another one. Say, oh, that would have been correct if I had asked blank. But I asked this question. Another one? Say, no, but I can see where you're coming from with that answer. Listen carefully to the question again. Or here's another one. Tell the student that doesn't know the answer to ask another student for help so that that student has to repeat that question again. Let them work together to come up with an answer. Those are some ways to deal with questions. And then the last thing here, I was back on the three. Remember, the first one was about how was the material given. The second one was what kind of questions are we formulating. Well, here is the third one. How did or do we respond to the child's answer? Do we close that communication loop? Do we say, yes, I can tell that you were really thinking. I can tell that you were listening. I can tell that you really had to put some thought into that and that you were able to reach back into your memory and come up with that answer. That's terrific. So how we respond to their answer may be a motivator to the next question that we ask. Now, I'm not saying that we do all praise. I am saying that we offer them encouragement and that we recognize their efforts. Well, that concludes the nine keys. You made it through. Congratulations. (laughs) Just as a brief wrap up, if you were able to do all nine of these components, you would be the most perfect therapist in the world. (laughs) And basically, that doesn't exist. There is no perfect therapy session, no perfect therapist. Uh, Chances are you've probably figured that out by now. But we all continue to strive. And these nine elements provide us a goal to work toward. And hopefully you can remember the Semp Creek. Go back, review the nine Semp Creeks. S stands for storage, E, emotions, movement, pronunciation, context, repeating, echo reading, exposure within a variety of activities, and questions. And just keep these things as much as possible in the back of your mind. Maybe even write them on a sheet of paper or type them up and stick it up on your therapy wall and every once in a while glance over there and see if there's something that you can add to your therapy that might make it a little more enjoyable for your kids, but also enhance their learning. So I wish you all the best. Take care. Hey, Busy SLP, Char Beauchart here. Here's a tip from me to you. Every week, become a lot more informed. Sign up for Therapy Matters at charbeauchart.com. It's free. Learn our tech and language tips and techniques and tons of ideas for making your school therapy life easier and more effective. I've been a therapist for 30 plus years, and I love to share what I've learned. 
Sign up for Therapy Matters, read it or listen to it at charboshart.com. You'll be glad you did because the therapy that you do matters. Sign up now. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless. Thank you.